0: Good afternoon and welcome to this your active discussion on the future of work. How has the COVID-19 pandemic reshaped the agenda? This event is supported by Zurich. I'm Brian McGuire. I'll lead the discussion today. And you can follow this discussion at hashtag EADebates. And please tweet your comments. Our social media team uh, will interact with you there. And to ask questions, you go to the chat section and use the ask button. And we'll bring those questions in during the course of the discussion a little bit later on. Now, even before the COVID-19 pandemic Pandemic, Europe was experiencing tectonic transformations in the labor market. The result of digital progress, climate change, and uh, the demographic shifts that we see all around this. Workers' rights, obligations and securities have been impacted and some have called for a new social contract. A five-year research collaboration between the Smith School of Enterprise at the University of Oxford and Zurich Insurance Group shows that the pandemic has accelerated changes in the role of government in insurance provision. The report suggests it's inevitable that the state can no longer be the insurer of last resort, particularly due to rising debt levels. New partnerships should be developed between governments, employers and benefits benefits uh, providers to protect workers against the enhanced risks of a post-pandemic uh, economy. We'll discuss these issues and others, but first, I'm very pleased to welcome our keynote speaker for today, uh, Jos Korte, he's the Director General at the uh, DG Employment at the European Commission. Great to have you with us, sir.
1: Thank you very much.
0: floor uh, is all uh, yours. Can you hear me? Yes, perfectly. Yeah. You're good to go.
1: Okay, very good. So thank you very much, first of all, uh, for, uh, for inviting me to this, uh, to this conference. And um, I very much agree, actually, Brian, with what you just said about the, uh, the short summary about the real issues uh, at stake. Uh, my first point, therefore, would be to say that um, we've been dealing with uh, the new world of work uh, for, for quite a long time. Uh, it's not that we are discovering this in the European Commission since the pandemic. I think rather more uh, the pandemic uh, is it, a bit of a pressure cooker that uh, accelerated the the trends that were already ongoing for a long time and that made it even uh, more important for us to deal with these issues uh, very, very urgently. Um, Remote working, our consumer habits like e-shopping have, of course, changed uh, quite fundamentally through the pandemic. And we need to really look seriously at at the consequence that this has for businessmen businessmen and individuals. Um, In fact, A majority of Europeans um, discovered remote working only in 2020. Uh, Only 5%, according to our data, of Europeans teleworked in 2019, and close to half of them did this last year, according to our survey. So that in itself, I think these figures are very, very, very telling. Of course, it allowed us to um, reduce the negative impact of COVID-19 on our health and our healthcare systems. And in many cases, it also brought other benefits people have certainly also enjoyed having less commute, commuting time and have been able to manage much better their personal and professional uh, commitments. So there are definitely a lot of benefits to this. But we also have serious reasons uh, to be cautious as prolonged teleworking um, on such a large scale, which will potentially continue also after we have left the crisis behind us, raises also a number of new questions. Uh, A central challenge is, of course, the impact on work-life balance and the blurring boundaries between work and private life, which can have a negative impact on individuals and their families. The permanent connectivity, lack of social interaction and increased use of ICT also risk bringing about increased psychosocial and ergonomic risks, which pose both a public health and an economic risk. I can, I can see this myself as well, I'm the Director General of, uh, of DG Employment, we have about 1,000 people staff and while I'm extremely pleased by how uh, my colleagues have been able to deal with the crisis and, and I think the, everybody will have seen that the output of the Commission hasn't at all suffered uh, from the crisis, I do see a number of quite um, uh, tricky and risky developments among the staff. And we can all see, I think, those of you who manage people that there are serious risks that we have to take very, very seriously. I also think that over time, the fact that um, we have so few uh, interaction, um uh, physical interactions in the office, risks also to reduce the, the sort of creativity of, of the workplace. And that's also something we need to look into. Uh, all of this is, in a way, crystallized in platform work. Um, when we look at, at platform work, it has rather reinforced, uh, the pandemic has rather reinforced and highlighted our need for action. Again, let me start with a few figures. The size of the digital labor platform economy in the European Union has grown almost fivefold from an estimated 3 billion euros turnover in 2016 to about 14 billion in 2020. Food delivery services are up by 125% in 2020. Uh, Ride-hailing services have gone down. When we think about the platform economy, I always try to to start with an optimistic assessment because it is fair to say that platform companies bring innovation, they create new jobs, and they enhance also, I think, the competitiveness of our economies. They provide additional income to many people and the most important thing is that they also provide access to certain groups of our societies that otherwise find it very difficult to enter the labour market. So this is a positive development which we should support, but there are also downsides. Platform work may result in precarious working conditions and inadequate access to social protection. This is, I think, the old logic of the European Union's intervention. We are in favor of these new developments, but at the same time, we also need to make sure that uh, the minimum rights that apply to other sectors of the economy are also applicable to platform work. Uh, How do we then approach these challenges, uh, finally? Um, Firstly, we obviously want workers and companies to take this digital turn successfully together. Europe will only be able to innovate and be competitive with modern businesses and workplaces. And this is why the EU Recovery Plan, supported by Next Generation EU, um, together with the funds uh, that are available for the coming years, puts a very strong focus precisely on digital transformation investments. In fact, under the uh, Recovery and Resilience Plans, there is a legal requirement for member states to spend at least 20% of their national envelope on, uh, on the digital transformation. So that was the first part. Second point, we also want to empower people. Today, nine in every 10 jobs require digital skills. Tomorrow, an increasing number of jobs will require green skills. And if we want people to learn new tasks or change jobs, we have to make sure that they can enjoy a right to be skilled. This means investing now in education and training as you will have the opportunity also to discuss later, later today. I think the skills challenges that are created by the pandemic, reinforced by the pandemic are bigger than ever before. And finally, the European Union of course promotes a sustainable world of work and also quality jobs. We cannot expect young people build their life and careers on precarious jobs. We cannot expect workers to be reachable 24 seven And we cannot accept that riders in the streets have less rights than other workers. Um, That brings me to, uh, finally, to a couple of specific initiatives, in particular on the platform work, where you know that uh, President von der Leyen already committed to an initiative. We are working on this together with the social partners. In fact, um, on the 15th of June, last week, we launched the second round of consultations of the social partners, and we now humbly wait for the outcome of that uh, process, which is uh, scheduled for for, for September and then we will take it forward. Uh, It is clear from our assessment of the situation, but also from our discussions with the social partners, that uh, there are a number of issues that need to be addressed. First of all, the employment status of platform workers. Secondly, also the transparency of decisions made by algorithms and finally also enforcement and social dialogue and this all in an area which is of course extremely uh, cross-border oriented if we look at the developments on the ground in the sector we see about 140 uh, court uh, decisions by now in different member states of the european union on the issues that i just mentioned and they come to different uh, solutions and, and a different outcome and this is i think um a real problem also for the further development of the sector. It's not easy to build a business model that is cross-border when you are confronted with different case law from different member states. And that's also, I think, a, a real a, a encouragement for the European Union uh, to act. So I think, uh, Brian, with this, I would like to uh, hopefully uh, to end and hopefully giving you a bit of the, the framework of the discussion as we see it uh, from the point of view of the European Commission. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. There's a great uh, overview of uh, what we're going to discuss today as well. I think all the, the key issues have been hit there. So thank you for that. You're going to stay with us for the panel discussion and for the Q&A as well. So let me just introduce the, the rest of the panelists for today. We have with us uh, Dragos Pislaru, He's a member of the European Parliament from Romania and a member of the Employment Committee in the European Parliament. Good to see you. Uh, Maria Mencheva. She's a member of the Employers Group at the European Economic and Social Committee. Very welcome. Uh, Mihai uh, Palimarchuk uh, from the Poli- policy analyst at the EPC. Great to have you with us. And Alison Martin, chief executive EMEA at uh, Zurich. Alison just had her second uh, COVID uh, vaccine. So she's a little bit under the weather today. So we really appreciate the fact that you actually made it on, on today, but we'll go, go easy with you on, on the questions. So I'm just gonna ask each of our panelists to do uh, just a, a quick introductory uh, remark and uh, then we'll get into the discussion as well. So Dragos, you wanna kick off?
2: Absolutely. So thank you so much, Brian. I would like to greet myself, uh, Director-General Jos Korte. Um, First of all, I would like to thank you, for the invitation um, to share with you my thoughts on such a crucial matter for you citizens as the future work is. I'm actually really delighted to be here with you. We are right now finding, uh, finding ourselves at a turning point. I think that the pandemic, we can say that it's actually put our worlds upside down with repeated and prolonged lockdowns with restrictions in, I think, almost all the fields of our lives, with a profound impact on our work life. So we have right now two possibilities. We either make the most out of this moment and we build the much needed resilience, that is the buzzword of today, that will allow us to face the you know future challenges affecting our member states and the union, or <sighs> the bad part would be to, to fail and sit by watching as our democracies erode and as people are left behind. Uh, and the politicians will just tap their fears and uncertainty. And I would actually say that we are well prepared to, you know, to, to do the most, to make the most out of it. And as a co rapporteur of the recovery and Resilience Facility, I really believe that we have actually taken a first step in the right direction. We have a tool that will allow us to come back stronger and more resilient. We cannot afford certainly to delay action. We have the opportunity right now for renewing this European social contract that you have actually um, mentioned as well, Brian, and the future of work is at the centre of Europe. That is actually forward-looking, a Europe that is fair and competitive, and we need this social contract to reflect, you know, through, uh, you know, uh, the a- economic uh, development and entrepreneurial and prosperous Europe that puts European citizens at the core of its existence and provides access and opportunity for well-paid jobs, allowing an independent and decent living. That's actually what we we should focus on. A Europe that is competitive and innovative, where people will not be left behind. Um, And a Europe in which the private sector works close with governments, um, so that the companies and businesses flourish alongside their employees while creating jobs and prosperity for all European citizens. That would be the vision that I'm uh, willing to defend here uh, in this particular debate. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And defend it, you will. So fair and competitively. Uh, So, Maria Mincheva, the floor is yours, just a quick introductory remarks.
3: Hello, uh, I would also start with my thanks for being here and for you organizing these very topical issues. But as you started yourself, uh, it's uh, the world of work, it's, uh, this is not a new topic, what's the future for, for, for the world of work. But what's the difference with this COVID crisis? Uh, this COVID-19 hit us overnight, literally, and it caused uh, unprecedented health crisis. So, the efforts of governments to limit the consequences of this health crisis have led us to economic crisis and uh, the GDP have dropped to levels that economists compare as the Second World War. So, uh, the term new normal appeared and uh, many believe that the world will never be the same after this pandemic, but would this prophecy become a reality and to what extent uh, we are about to see in the following years. So I think one year after the pandemic, we are already uh, can make some conclusions in order to uh, prepare for similar future shocks. Uh, serious deficits of the welfare system have become uh, very visible due to reasons we, we all know. And uh, millions of companies had to adapt the way they operate uh, really overnight. And switching to telework that was not planned uh, was really a challenge to both uh, companies and uh, employees and it's uh, really important how we would proceed from now on but uh, COVID only accelerated uh, the things that were coming uh,
0: uh, uh, anyway. So thank you very much. Too much. Uh, Mihai Palimarchuk.
4: Yeah, thank you very much, Brian. I already see uh, a lot of agreement. We all recognize the fact that The problems were there before, Uh, and it's important to recognize also that the agenda for a progressive future of work was already there as well. Uh, And it rests on two pillars: competitive labor markets with high-skilled workers, and social protection systems that are uh, sustainable and that reinforce that uh, labor market. COVID, uh, I'm not going to repeat it, accelerated many trends. It increased government indebtedness, but at the same time, it's kind, it's also Uh, revealed the importance of social protection and it it revealed that governments can act quickly, uh, right? They extended social protection schemes to the self-employed when they wanted to and that was a big big change of course. So right now, what we see and what governments have to do is to seize uh, the day and to put uh, in place support for upskilling, for reskilling, and to rebuild the deteriorated uh, safety net.
0: Much, Alison Martin.
5: Thanks. So maybe I'll just try and add a different lens and perspective to it. So very much from a business perspective, and I think we firmly believe that businesses have a really important role to play play and not only they can but they should um, support the mental social physical financial well-being of their workers regardless of the nature of work to the director general's earlier comments around kind of the rise of the gig workers i think the onus is really on on employers to also support it's well and good asking governments to put in place reskilling initiatives but i think we need to recognize the important roles that, that businesses have and they must step up to that i think they need to provide uh, career paths that work with the increasing levels of automation and digitization we see. We need to be employing apprentices. We need to be bringing people who are most hardest hit by the impact of COVID-19 into the workplace. And we should be disclosing what we're doing. So there's a lot of focus in ESG on the E. We need as much focus on the S as we have on the E so that investors and other key stakeholders can actually compare what each business is actually doing. Um, are they walking the talk? I think I mean, there's already in the opening remarks and comments around the labour market policy to, to, to reflect the changing nature of work, and I think that is really important. I'd add that government can, through actions, through very strong nudges, whether it's things like auto-enrolments or whether it's tax policy, can also strongly encourage both companies and individuals, importantly, to provide for, in the event that they have loss of income, whether it's during working life or whether it's in retirement. And I think insurers, we, we have an obligation to make it much easier. So using the tools that are creating some of the challenges, the digitization, actually, we should be able to make it much more straightforward, for both corporates and also for individuals to get access to the kind of protections that they need. And I think if we stand back and link, because a couple of these trends, digitization, and also the the decarbonization of the economy, if you think about what pension provision is all about, this is long-term savings. And long term savings needs to invest. And what kind of investments does it typically make? makes it into long term investments, the kind of infrastructure, the kind of capabilities that we need to support if we're going to transition to a much lower and get carbon economy and get to net zero. So I think it it provides a, a nice way of providing an opportunity for us all to save for the future. Thank you. So, yeah, you know, we
0: just talk a bit about the social contract. We'll take it from the higher level, and we'll get down to how we make this all work in a bit more detail as we go through. Uh, but Alison's talking here about long-term investments, and and you know, not just in terms of our pensions, but also you know, the infrastructure, everything needed to make our society function properly uh, later on as well. How do you see the social contract being renewed? What what kind of structure should that entail, Dragos? Oh, uh, I would like
2: you put to your,
0: your mic. Okay, we got it,
2: fine. Yeah, so I I was saying that, first of all, um, I mean, I just want to emphasize this thing that the the, the social agenda is not that doctrinally loaded anymore. I, I would really believe that right now advancing the social agenda is a matter of preserving democracy. And and, and we, we we were able to see basically the fact that if we leave people behind, um and in, in the pandemics while while we had this you know awful situation, the vulnerable categories were the ones suffering the most. And so so it's really important to understand the direct connection in between political extremism, be that left or right, and um you know the inequality in our societies. So what we need right now to recognize is on one hand, that um, you know, we need to, to treat social policies and in terms of access and opportunity, regardless where we are on the political spectrum, if we are fond of democracy. Uh, the second thing that is really important is that silo policies are not working anymore, so we need integrated policy. I mean, we cannot just pretend that we are acting uh, with one ministry or one DG, uh, and, and we are solving problems that are related to education and health. Um, nutrition housing uh, you know workplaces skilling and so on and so forth so so we need an integrated approach and another thing that is really important as part of this redefining of the social contract is uh, is, is the simple fact that um, we really are uh, uh, right now having some big structural changes in our society and indeed um, you know we have the 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 twil, the twin the dual transformation you know the, the, the green and the digital one. But what is really important is to understand that, that we need to, to shift basically uh, the way in which we perceive the social contract from a passive, reactive way to a proactive way in which we are regarding the public and private partnership as being at the core. Uh, it's actually you know, an advancement of this concept of resilience that we are actually talking about. Thank so you. social contract, in a nutshell, it's about redefining the society uh, perception to social policy. Thank you.
0: Well, that should be easy enough, Uh, just uh, the idea that uh, the European Commission should not work in silos and that uh, the the policy to secure the future of work in Europe, that's no easy task to do. It's really a culture change that's required, not just at the Commission's level, but also uh, at member states. How do you see this new social contract unfold in the way that Dragos described, where all these layers need to be renewed and invested in, uh, and at the right moment as well? just
1: yes uh, it's never easy nothing in the European Union is easy uh, Brian uh, and we're paid for this to make it work nevertheless and I think uh, together with the Parliament and the council we're actually uh, quite successful I'm I'm if I look back at everything that was done over the last year it's absolutely stunning and uh, I, if you'd asked me a year ago I never thought we would be where we are now uh, with all the various initiatives so we're doing actually pretty well I mean when it, when it comes to your to your more to your question, I think the starting point, as uh, as Dragos was also saying, is actually quite a favourable one. We did a, a Eurobarometer survey, and it turned out that uh, 88% of the Europeans who were asked they say that a social Europe matters to them personally, um, and and uh, just over seven in ten believe that the lack of social rights is a serious problem right now. So there is. There's quite an expectation and I think also a lot of support uh, from the from the population for a, a very active uh, a program at the level of the European Union. And we're rolling that out. Uh, and that, that's my second point. We would like to mention the outcome of the, the summit that took place in Porto uh, earlier in, in May and how significant the commitments are that were taken there at the highest political level of the European Union. Um, and I think the the I mean you can say a lot about this summit and about the text that came out, and but uh, essentially it means that there is a very strong political uh, commitment uh, from all the leaders of Europe to make sure that the recovery out of the out of COVID-19 is done socially, uh, and 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 that's also where the European Pillar of Social Rights comes in, which I think is important. The action plan, um, and also I think um, you know. Honestly, I think learning also from the, what, how, 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 the crisis, how previous crises were managed, and I think uh, politicians very well realized that there was an enormous cost um, uh, by the way the way this was done after the financial crisis, and that we should not make that mistake again, and that this does indeed mean that the state needs to step in, and that also the European Union is there to support them.
0: Okay, Alison. The, the idea that the business and government are uh, distinct entities, when clearly they're not. There, this, there has to be a harmonized approach here as well. You know, the economy, businesses simply will not function unless uh, all the conditions for growth and, and competitiveness are there, whether it's in the education system, whether it's in the healthcare system as well. So we need to get all, all these things aligned. Where do you see the necessary investment uh, now? Where do you think the European Commission should should really be laying the foundation for future prosperity?
5: <laughs> That's a very big question. I, I, I'm going to struggle to actually say that I think Um, you you probably need me to be controversial but I actually think the agenda that the European Commission has is a very good agenda and we very much support the tracks of focusing on digitization focusing on the green agenda so particularly when we look at where's the recovery fund money going into uh, we would very much agree that is exactly where we need to be investing in and obviously that goes from education at the youngest ages through to what are we doing with reskilling of, of employees so that they're also relevant I mean Brian I think in your your I mean, remarks, you were you were making the the comment that actually it is about um, and workers need to have capabilities in in a multitude of different skills now. So well, the obligation I think is very much on us as employers to make sure we continue to make our workforce fit for the future. Uh, and to the the social contract point, I, I think that employers do need to have a new social contract with their workforce, that it's not just about automation and digitization and oh, what's the role for the workers? It can't possibly be that. It needs to be about how do we bring our employees along that journey of the transformation that we're gonna to need to make in all industries and so that we can equip them for the for the future roles that are necessary. So I I, I can't say as I disagree with the agenda. So I actually, I, we positively support the agenda that, that the European Commission and European Parliament are pursuing.
0: Thank you. Mihai, how do you see this? Is do you think it's realistic to expect that employees' rights are going to be front and center here? Uh, as Drago said, if we don't take care of the the social dimension, you know, we risk democracy itself. Or do you think it's always going to be a case of profit first for for companies? Or is that short-sighted uh, for the, from the commercial side as well? That there needs to be a balance. There needs to be respect for for social rights if business, if the capitalist system is going to survive. Mihai.
4: Thank you. Uh, easy questions.
0: Uh, well, That's what, we're here for. what I think
4: is that, <laughs> what I think is that, uh, as Dragos pointed out, uh, the new social contract is indispensable for democracy and we need to put our, uh, money where our mouth is, to be honest. Uh, I think in the European pillar of social rights, There are a lot of provisions which are instrumental to the future of work and to building a new social contract. People do expect more from governments and employers expect more from governments after COVID-19. And regardless of uh, private or of public uh, provision, what is important is to have the right incentives. To be honest, governments do need to make certain things mandatory. There needs to be a mandatory and uh, gaps in coverage in basic insurance such as sickness or income protection need to be reduced to increase sustainability. So it is about costs and it is about the economics of it, it's just that governments need to, uh, to realize the importance of these rights, of these social rights for the population, for their democracies and for their economy.
0: Singing uh, Chet Baker songs. I'm inspired by uh, what you have in the background there. They, we've got that old feeling, looking for the silver lining. I think that's the one we're going. We have time after time as well. We'll come back to some of those later on. Uh, Maria, you, the, you represent the employers' group and the the Economic Social Committee. You, is this a difficult conversation for employers to have with trade unions, for example, or, or do you feel as though you're on the same page? And has the pandemic shifted? the narrative that you engage with on a day-to-day basis, you know, is there greater respect for uh, mental health and physical health as a consequence of this, or are we going to go back to the way things were before? We have some employers who perform well at this, but the majority would sit in the questionable category.
3: Uh, I would uh, take part of uh, what colleagues said before me about this uh, advanced social agenda and how much important it is. And I'm really not surprised that uh, a large uh, part of of society said that uh, they would be happy to have a a sound social agenda. However, we should not forget that uh, in order to have a strong social agenda, we need to have a strong economic agenda. And businesses are still struggling from uh, excessive regulation uh, and from uh, many burdens uh, inside the the, um, single market. So, uh, if we if we need social rights applicable, we need to think how to pay for it, and uh, the debates uh, around this uh, European Action Plan on, on the implementation of the European Pillar of Social Rights are uh, really heated because uh, we have simply have uh, different views on how, how to get there where the Commission wants uh, want to take us. So if we need to talk about uh, the new social contract, uh, contract, I would give you uh, uh, some other parameters that we need to take into account. First of all, we have uh, aging society, we have fewer people uh, going into uh, the labor market, and uh, fewer people contributing to, to the, the uh, welfare systems, and then many others who uh, have to contribute uh, have to have to uh, contribute from, from these systems. Then we have transforming societies, transforming uh, digitally, transforming uh, ecologi- uh, ecologically the the the, twin, the so-called uh, twin tra- twin transition. So we need to take into account uh, these factors when we speak about uh, uh, the new social contract. Also, we have new generation of of young people who have absolutely different uh, attitude towards uh, working place, towards uh, working time, towards hierarchy. So we should not try to solve uh, these new emerging issues with the old instruments that we we used to have in the traditional economy
0: thank you Alison wanted to reply well,
5: I was going to try and build a little bit on the resilience point and the, the kind of the relative roles of business and I suppose the almost the underpinning question of why should they care and I think I mean when, when we look at uh The broad dimensions of state—if we call it stakeholder capitalism or purpose-driven organisations, whatever label I guess we choose to use—but as you think about the the economic reality of making sure you are providing uh, for all of the stakeholders, whether it's your customers, partners, your employees, your shareholders, society, and planet at large, I think—I mean, there is a—if we look at employees, I mean, there is a real cost if you do not. Look after your employees' mental well-being. I mean, we provide income protection cover for corporates and for individuals. And 20 to 25% of our claims around Europe are mental well-being claims. I mean, that that's a huge amount. And that's so I think the onus is very much on businesses to ensure that they are providing for the well-being of their employees in all the dimensions. And it goes back to the importance of transparency and I think with uh, the CSRD and I think the opportunity we have through that to encourage increasing levels of transparency across the broad dimensions of ESG with the S particularly. I, I I think again we're going to give investors choice. So we're going to importantly give employees a choice as well. Okay, what companies do I want to work for? What, who do I want to stay with? Who do customers want to buy from? Uh, what do you stand for as an organization? So I do think there is a positive Trend here and an opportunity through increasing transparency to really try and mi- marry up the needs of business with the needs of society at large.
0: Alison, do you, how do you feel about mandatory uh, auto enrollment for pension schemes as well? Do you think, you know, the UK does this, uh, and amongst others, here in Belgium, there's, there's a form of mandatory enrollment as well, but depending which sector you work in, it's, it's quite different. How, how do you see this play? Is this something you, you could see in, uh, uh, you know, we talk about single market in Europe as well. Can mm-hmm. we really, as, as we heard earlier, have different jurisdictions playing with such different rules that it's nearly impossible for cross-border uh, businesses to, to have a business model? So mandatory auto-enrollment, a sensible way forward or necessary?
5: <laughs> sensible and necessary, yes, Brian. I think with opt out mechanisms in place, then I think that's the easiest way. I mean, obviously, you can target it in a twin track approach. We need financial education both at schools to improve, but also through um, through a, a, an employee's uh, working life. Um, but to help facilitate that as a bridging solution, absolutely, auto enrollment is a very simple nudge. Uh, that's worked incredibly successfully in markets that have put it in place yes
0: okay just from the Commission's perspective what's the sensibility towards mandatory schemes like this is it something you prefer to see uh, you know what what would be the direction of travel that you've seen in, in the coming years
1: well in fact in the um, in the capital markets Union action plan there is already quite a lot of um, attention paid to out enrollment of uh, of these um, occupational pension schemes and in fact um, i think we also broadly in favor uh, of course uh, as Alison said there needs to be also uh, quite a strong opt-out uh, possibility but at least uh, that the um, the starting point is that everybody has it i think we would uh, we would see that as a very positive development to uh, to build up uh, a proper pension for your old age and also, I think uh, bro- very broadly to help uh, the European uh, uh, Capital Markets Union from from being created, and it's also a lot of capital that uh, is generated and that can be spent and invested in our future prosperity.
0: And just. A- this as well in terms of uh, the single market dimension. Would, uh, if you take a broader view of this as well, is it necessary this accelerates uh, across the whole of the European Union at the same time, or is this simply a matter of competitiveness? Those uh, member states that uh, implement these kind of uh, uh, schemes will be better positioned and be more competitive in the future. Just.
1: Well, I mean that that's also quite a difficult question to to answer in, in 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 a few words. But I think there is definitely a relationship between the two. I mean, if you have a well-functioning uh, pension system, uh, uh, and you have um, uh, uh, that, that, that means that, that that the country has also the potential to invest uh, in uh, uh, the uh, the contributions that are made in 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 the growing parts of of the economy, and if that is made um, or if it's also made easier to do that in a cross-border way. I think at the end of the day, it's pretty clear, looking at the economic studies, that everybody will profit from it, not just the country concerned, but the whole of the European Union.
0: Okay, Dragos, the idea that we uh, should retire early or that we should retire at at 65, is this something that belongs to the previous generation? Is this, should the next generation expect that they should be working longer, but working in a more flexible way? And should the, the pension contribution system, the social welfare system, help them do that
2: yeah i mean uh what we're we what we should work for is a sustainable system that means uh i mean i i mean we can start working on financial education so that people are going to understand that the public systems may not actually be the the only ones Supporting their pension um, in Europe, uh, and, and I'm actually the rapporteur on the implementation of the pan-European personal pension. Um, you know, which is related to the third pillar of the pension system, and 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 then again, this can create opportunities uh, for for investing your in your, in your private pension, uh, which is a non-occupational one. Obviously, when when it comes to occupational pensions in the public sector, or, I mean, we are right now in a situation where we don't have too many options. We can either prolong the uh, you know the retirement age. Um, we can uh, more or less look around and, and see if there are you know exceptions um, you know uh, going on for different categories. Um, that are exempted or they have their own uh, special pension systems and and obviously uh, or rules and and obviously we need to to figure out if they're if the, those are sustainable or not but generally speaking, I, I believe that indeed it will be a, a question of uh, both uh, more or less diversifying the sources for revenue and for pensions uh, after your active uh, participation in the labor market. And at the same time, indeed, would be a question of uh, you know postponing a little bit your retirement age uh, as things are looking right now. Uh, the, the demographic pyramid right now suggests that we are uh, in dire need of reconsidering the sustainability of pension system uh, across Europe, and I, I doubt that there are very many countries that are actually afford to do any kind of reform. On that. And by the way, the RF is allowing um, you know exactly that these particular changes, and there are many there are several member states uh, using the uh, recovery and resilience facility money for these particular reforms, as we are talking there about reforms and investments. Thank you. Mihai.
0: Just get your audio. One second. Okay. And I think you should be good to go. Go ahead, Mia.
4: Okay. Sorry for that. Um, What uh, I want to say is that it's very good that we're focusing on sustainability, right? We all want uh, social rights, but we need to pay for it, as it was said uh, in the panel. You know the demographic changes and everything will have to will will dramatically transform how we provide pension and also how we provide others uh, other type of insurance. But and it's important to do policies such as um, transition between working life to pension. uh, So not having a clear cut point where you stop working. But there are also low hanging fruits, and here it's important to tackle them as soon as possible. And these are of course like categories that are not uh, mandated to contribute to pension funds or they are slipping through uh, the requirements because they don't qualify they either work too few hours or they uh, have uh, interrupted uh, contracts and, and periods of work so it's important to, to combine yes we need new instruments but we also have old instruments that are not being used currently so, it's, it's not about uh, inventing the wheel, it's using the old and also adapting to the new.
0: Okay, Maria, how, how do you see this?
3: Well, uh, if we speak about the, the pension systems and not the, 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 uh, the products uh, that uh, separate employers produce, I think we need to separate these two topics. The pension uh, pension, uh, systems uh, and the private pension funds uh, to me, they are without uh, any alternative given the the, the circumstances with this aging society that I already mentioned. So it's uh, clear that this cooperation uh, should continue and and then we should really try to find different sources of funding for uh, delivering for, for the social rights of people for taking their pension when the time comes. At the same time, we have uh, many good models in Europe uh, for schemes, applicable schemes, for gradually exiting the, the labor market so people do not have to wait until the age of 65. They put their good schemes, good examples with uh, uh, leaves, uh, leaves accounts so people don't, uh, when they uh, work more during their working life, so they could they save into their accounts uh, Few days, so they could use in the end of their career, and they gradually exit. So this takes into account their their age, their reduced ability and motivation to stay at the workplace. At the same time, keeps them so they could interact with uh, younger workers and could contribute uh, uh, to the company's activity. So all all these examples, they should be you know used and considered when we think of. The future policies that we want to implement in the member states. Employers also do a lot to, to invest in uh, uh, ergonomics of, of the working places, uh, working places that take into account uh, uh, chronical diseases of, of these um, uh, older workers because this, this comes with age, so we we need to to, to to do everything possible to maintain
0: these people. Alison Martin, people about this, actually. Alison, I know we've spoken a little bit about this before, actually. The aging population, and you spoke about financial education earlier. I want to come on to that in just a moment as well. But healthy aging, that's one of the biggest cost-saving benefits that Europe could possibly invest in, and yet we don't do a huge amount towards that. From the insurance sector, is there a nudge capacity there? where uh, you know, the, the public-private partnership should really be a lot more active? And is there a way to incentivize healthy aging through the insurance and pension scheme as well?
5: Another big question. So uh, I would argue that probably there has been a lot of investment in healthy aging actually across um, lots of different countries. I think if you look at how much, um, what the, the a burden, uh, it's probably a terribly poor choice of words, of of kind of aging is on health systems. It's typically just in the last year of life, that's where 90% plus of the cost is. So actually the vast majority of the extension of life that we have seen, which is fabulous, and we should absolutely celebrate um, the investment that has already been made in public health systems, in research, in pharmaceuticals, et cetera, in order to be able to deliver that. So so I think uh, I I will probably slightly disagree with the question. The, the, the challenge is obviously pension systems and the whole social protection system was designed in an era where, when we didn't have that, we hadn't had such extension of life. And we, we just have to have those honest conversations that we, we cannot expect this to continue to persist as it is today that we need to celebrate the fact that we have had all this additional, and most of it is healthy life expectancy. um, And how can we provide, is is it about providing within the workforce, yes, the reskilling capabilities? Is it about ensuring people save more so that they can enjoy that longer retirement period? But something has to give in this. Now, we can continue to support more health yes through services there's lots of great tools that insurers have to try and encourage healthy behaviors and and i'm sure lots of us wear kind of fitness devices to try and encourage that in ourselves but but i do think that the fundamental question is one we have to address which is the social protection system was designed in an era when people's life expectancy looked very different to today
0: Okay, we have a question and comment I'm going to come to you in just a second, but before we do, Alison, just on the financial education, so my 14-year-old daughter wrote an economics essay in school just literally four weeks ago, and she was horrified at the pension system and how the public pension system here in Belgium would provide so little to so many people when it came to retirement age as well. So it's one thing that we have mandatory systems, but. How useful are they? Are we are our expectations for pension contributions sufficient? Should we be increasing those and, and uh, at a mandatory level and for a, a quality of life? And just to throw another angle, uh, the pension gap between men and women as well. Women will suffer a lot, uh, the pension gap later on too. How do we make this corrective?
5: So in part that goes a little bit back to what I was just saying. I think we need to have the honest conversation around life expectancy. Uh, which is to be celebrated the extension of that with how we are funding that and we don't fund currently for the level of life expectancy that we all benefit from today so something has to give either either the government through policy decisions governments can take action to ensure that there is sufficient funding um, but the 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 kind of the pay-as-you-go model just isn't working I mean the panel's already talked about the demographic shifts. I mean, clearly that model is, is is not going to persist for us. So yes, of course, private sector can provide ability to, to pick up some of that differential, but we have to have then schemes in place that would. we've talked already about auto enrollment you, We can talk about tax incentives, whether that be for the employers or for the employees themselves. Uh, and then uh, again, also as raised previously in the panel what do we do about people who don't have an employer so those who are taking more flexible options how do we make sure that they're also provided for so is it that you you carry kind of your your auto enrollment is linked to you as an individual and not you as an employee of a a particular organization so how do we make sure that that flexibility um, is is available if you think of the digitization tools we have then we should be able to do that that should not be rocket science for us Um, but it, it feels like there's still the the elephant in the room conversation that's needed to be had about what level of funding is really required.
0: Yes, but is the elephant insured or not? That's really the question. Mihai, the cross-border <laughs> cross-border pension portability. Um, yeah, this this strikes me as something which, just like Alison said, we're living in a digital age. How on earth can we not have a portable pension which is digitized, and the moment we step into uh, to work in another system, it can be automatically cal- recalculated? You know, if Google were doing this, they'd have not done yesterday. Should European Union not be at this yet, Mihai? Did you unmute yourself? Well, we're going to we have.
4: have yeah. uh, so I would. I would love. To- for uh, Mr. Corte to answer this because... He's going well to in know, just a second, the, don't you worry. Social Security passed, so uh, I'm uh, excited to see what uh, is prepared uh, on that front, and then I'm going to I'm gonna comment.
0: Just, he set you up?
1: Uh, indeed he did, yes, and I'm not even in charge of that file in the commission. I mean, I'm, I'm doing DG Employment, I'm not doing DG, uh, uh, DG FISMA, but okay, no, I think, uh, I mean, for me, obviously, uh, working for the European Commission, we are very much in favor of uh, cross-border mobility of pensions. I mean, and I think the systems today are, are quite outdated, as indeed is true uh, for the other points that, notably, uh, Alison made. And I think um, what I could add here, maybe, is I think that the, the government interventions that took place on a massive scale in the, in, as a result of, of, the, of the pandemic uh, and the fact that they were unable to make a distinction in the aid for those who have a a formal contract of of an employee and the independent people, the self-employed, I think has made a lot of people think. So, uh, notably the finance ministers, because they are actually bailing out uh, many people uh, uh, who are on a self-employed, working on a self-employed basis and therefore didn't contribute and many of the social uh, benefits that they now profit from. And I think this has made them think, and I I, I agree very much with what was said, that this sort of distinction between worker or or an employee and a labor contract on the one hand and the self-employed person is getting uh, excessively difficult. And we are still in the European Union, I think, also very handicapped by that because we are working on a treaty that is really reflecting the economic reality of the 50s and the 60s. And we cannot legislate. Uh, on on self on self-employed people, uh, we are working on the title that's called uh, labour conditions, working conditions, but they're only for the for the employees, and this is actually one of the biggest issues we're having. Uh, Will also uh, sort of a, a real issue for the for the platform work initiative where there's the same distinction. Uh, I Miss, mean, but but I mean going back to the question though I don't want to duck the question though I, though, though of course Mr. Pislau is the real expert I think in the panel, he has to, he has done all this. So I'm happy to pass uh, on to him, but I'm in favour of much more cross-border mobility for pensions. That's for sure.
0: Dragos, quick comment on this.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of <laughs> weird because I'm actually dealing in econ about you know with the pan-European pension. I'm dealing in in EMPO with uh, you know the coordination of social security system with 883 and the 987. Um, so I will try to answer briefly indeed um, I think that portability is is a must I think that it's right now it's outrageous that people in certain member states are waiting for more than two years to actually get their pension rights and not a, not that not all times they are actually getting everything that they should so I think that we are going you know in a good direction with uh, with uh, with those uh, with the issues related to to the coordination of social security system, uh, although although the file is not done yet, and we are still you know struggling a little bit um, in the trilogues, I I, I do believe that um, the the digitalization will make a difference, and that's actually a very important thing indeed as mihai has hinted the uh, european commission is very active in you know pushing the digitalization process and the 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 uh, eid and the and the, the pass that are actually you know two of the initiatives that are right now uh, put forward are going to help a lot tremendously uh, by the way uh, talking to Alison right now, indeed, digitalization has actually helped a lot. And this is one of the features that is is more or less reshaping the insurance industry throughout the world right now. The fact that they, they can actually tap and, you know, segment better the market, understand better the needs of the clients and have them as, you know, at the fingertip with, you know, accessing products. But just an additional point on, on, on what we are talking about, the elephant in the room here indeed i mean as an economist things are quite clear i mean you have a dependency ratio that is the number of people that should um be uh, you know retired and 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 supported by the pension system and the ones that are going to pay the money and indeed Alison has hinted that the pay as you go system is not functional and this is not because the governments you know don't want you know the system to be functional be, because you know the system is not sustainable on the long on the long run so what we need to do and and I I, I heard you twice Brian suggesting that you know there is an issue of financial education and there is we need to have people aware be that entrepreneurs or self employed or be that, uh, you know workers they they need to be aware of the fact that the public system cannot right now as it is you know more or less cater their pension uh, you know in a in a satisfat- satisfactory uh, way so what we need to do is more or less to insist and you know work together both public and private sector you know to ensure that we have this awareness before we are entering the labor market or, you know, the, the professional life. And, and it's really crucial to, to, to create right now a paradigm shift and, you know, allow the younger generation to be able to, um, you know, um, afford to, to, to retire after their professional life by allowing them, you know, and, and, and enabling them to access products that will actually do that. So this is a private okay. public thing.
0: Thank you. Um, Quick uh, comment from Pave, who says, very important remark from Dragos that we cannot work in silos anymore, but we need cross-sectoral cooperation. Thank you for that. And let me just go to a couple of questions. One here from Nuno. Nuno, uh, Just, maybe you want to take this one. Um, I think you touched on this a little bit already. Do you anticipate increasing policymaker regulation on remote working in the European Union? So do you increase Do you anticipate increased policymaker regulation on remote working in the European Union?
1: Well, there are various uh, dimensions to that question. I think um, um, there is definitely um, on remote working, um, as was said before, uh, a health and psychosocial dimension that I think we should take uh, very seriously. There's a discussion ongoing, uh, triggered very much by the European Parliament on this uh, right to disconnect, which we're taking forward. There was an own, an own initiative resolution on that point and i also see in many member states that in fact the legislator is dealing with this in, in various uh, shapes and forms so we have to see whether we can contribute to that at the eu level um so, so that's one element in in the in the uh, occupational health and safety area for which we're also responsible Uh, We are coming forward with a strategy uh, next week, which will also uh, have uh, some interesting ideas uh, in this regard. Um, Secondly, I mean, uh, um, uh, teleworking, we have the pillar of social rights. We have also a new directive that needs to be implemented by the Member State next year, which is called the Transparent and Predictable Working Conditions, which sets a number of minimum rights. And let me remind you, we only fix minimum rights Uh, at the European Union level. That's the only legal basis we have and on top of that member states can always do more if they want. And then we very much support collective bargaining, that's my last word, and social dialogue because I think the best of all worlds is if this is taken forward, not by the Commission or by the European Union, not even necessarily by member states or legislators. It is so much better if this is taken forward by the social partners, which is actually happening in, in most of our member states, also during the pandemic, they did fantastic work. Um, uh, not everywhere, I must say, um, and sadly, very little agreements can be found at the EU level. Uh, but I think that is um, that is where I think I see the most uh, benefit of, uh, of of social dialogue.
0: Thank you, Maria.
3: Uh, yes, thank you. What well, I wanted to add when we speak about EU legislation, just to remind that there are two. Framework agreement, autonomous agreement of the European social partners. One is uh, on telework uh, uh, from 2002, implemented in uh, all the member states practically. In some member states, there is a national legislation uh, amended to transpose this uh, uh, telework agreement into national legislation. Then last year, the, the social partners concluded agreement on digitalization, also covering these. Uh, issues, especially on uh, the right to disconnect at the workplace, and, and touching upon the digitalization issues on the, on the workplace, so uh, this is what should be taken into account, and uh, the European Commission, in our opinion, should not legislate before these uh, uh, new agreements are fully implemented and reported.
0: Okay, thank you. Alison, let's talk a little bit about resilience. You know, the new normal, whatever that is this week compared to last week, uh, who knows. Uh, when we get back to September after we've had some sort of uh, uh, recuperation and uh, there's a mixture of hybrid things going on, and how will we have learnt any lessons? Will our economy be more resilient? Are we going to reorganize our, our uh, support systems, our social systems f- to prepare for the next pandemic, which is almost inevitable?
5: I hope so, but do I think that we're going to? I, I guess if you look at re- resilience building and all, it's not just for pandemics we need to build sure. resilience for. We need to build resilience for the physical risk of climate change that we see through kind of increased frequency of storm activity, flood, et cetera. We need to heat waves, drought, etc. We need to build resilience for cyber attacks. I mean, there's obviously been a huge increase in that and, and whether home working is kind of leading to an increase in that or it's simply that, the increasing level of the uh, sophistication of the cyber criminals, but it, building resilience, yes, absolutely, across all kinds of risks is critical for government for businesses in order for us to have an economy that thrives. Um, be, but the the trade off cost of that, I mean, it's always the same debate. Um, I mean, if I we look at natural catastrophes, and more than ninety percent of the money goes into post event recovery in natural catastrophes, yet uh, all of our research has shown that if you, if you invested a dollar uh, in building resilience, you would save five in post-event recovery. So, so, I mean, the economics is simple, yet, of course, we have to, uh, we, of course, we realise that whether it be business and delivering on, on shareholder requirements or whether it's governments and, and trying to balance the books, it's not straightforward to be able to fund building that resilience today against a risk that you know is likely to happen at some point. But
0: not necessarily tomorrow, Dragos. Um, how simple is it to make the argument that one euro invested will save you five in the long term, and that really it's a special kind of stupidity not to do this when you know the truck is going to hit you as well? Why don't? Why do policymakers take so long to invest in, in the right uh, platforms here when we we're we trying to fix things that that are too broken to be fixed? What? what is there a mindset that needs to change in policymakers
2: across Europe to get the right money going to the right place? I mean, depending on the policymakers, because we are actually preparing <laughs> in the parliament. <laughs> we are preparing in the parliament a couple of initiatives. The Commission is preparing another couple of initiatives. For instance, uh, the concept of impact investment that is reflecting exactly what Alison is, you know, is talking sure. about. You know, the, you know the the investment that is dedicated to prevention, for instance, for uh, you know avoiding early school uh, the dropout. You know, you know securing early education or prevention investments towards health. Uh, you know, these are other types of investments uh, similar to the ones described by Alison in the in the. Uh, area of uh you know uh disaster recovery and, and indeed i mean with the multiples in the in the evidence that we have are going from uh you know uh multiple seven to multiple 14 in some cases of, of you know niche prevention investment so i would say that right now uh i think that there are there is a you know a critical mass of policy makers um uh, in the European Parliament, in the Member States, in the in the Commission, uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, initiating these kind of concepts. And we have right now, in even in InvestEU, we have a, a compartment dedicated to impact investment. We have right now the EIB working heavily on social impact investment and social outcome contracts. So I, I'm actually quite... Um, quite uh, uh, pleased with the fact that both in the field of green and uh, social, and I would also dare to say that we have a, a debate on industrial policy as well with the concept of strategic autonomy that is also, you know, more or less going in the same line of avoiding risks and vulnerabilities for the future. So, resilience is i think right now more or less tackled in each and every you know side of, of what we talk but again coming to my initial argument it's important not to you know have a silo policy but to bring them together so indeed when, it, when it's about impact investment it's about economics of social when it's about green and economy then we have the green transformation when it's about digital helping all the other sectors then we do, we don't need to see it as a sectoral thing but as mainstream in our society
0: Okay, thank you. Mihai, you, know, you said earlier we've learned lessons from the economic crisis, you know, austerity stung in ways that perhaps some said it was going to, but uh, the policy process didn't take account of it. It was more of a, a spreadsheet exercise and the human cost was not calculated quite so well. You know, when we look forward, do you think that, uh, as Drago says, you know, we, the resilience is there, it's better understood, we're much more careful about where the investment is going now has Europe matured in this or are we becoming more resilient and does this reflect well in terms of our preparedness for our future economy, Mihai? Thank you.
4: Well, what we can say already is that we have learned the lessons of the past in how we manage this economic crisis. Uh, indeed, we provided much more support and we did, um, you know, enlarge our purse rather than tighten our belts. So I think that is one important uh, aspect. Now, regards to how we learn from this crisis uh, to prevent other pandemics, it's, uh, to be honest, uh, quite difficult to 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 know because we don't know how uh, governments will be forced to react in one or two years. Will the restrictions on indebtedness uh, be uh, put back on and fast, and will they forced, be forced to have balance sheets uh, again pretty soon, or will they be allowed to invest in resilience? Uh, this is quite an important question that, so far, we don't have the the answer. Uh, but but Jack Baker think has that, the answer.
0: He said, uh, "Do it the hard way or lament." <laughs> Two more song updates. Um, but yeah, I think that in in the end.
4: What is important to recognize, even with you know like helping uh, the private sector and insurance to do prepare and to do uh, put more resilience in our economies, is the fact that we need to mandate these things. We need to learn that we have, as a society, we have to demand those things, and politicians and governments have to deliver uh, on mandate. Well, let me let me ask you this.
0: Let me, listen, on, in terms of mandating stuff in Europe, it doesn't go down yeah. too well with the electorate generally, as uh, um, uh, Mr. Macron of France uh, will testify. And the idea that you need to bring the constituents with you when you do this, they need to understand why it's been mandated, what their buy-in is, and you have to have the equity there. It must be a sense of fairness and proportionality across the whole society. That's a big ask, isn't it? Do you, are you optimistic that Europe can balance this, Mihai?
4: Well, I think this is what changed compared to the last crisis is that people have understood uh, and I think that people are more willing to to let uh, governments and to you know to invest and to get into debt in order to build resilient societies um, it's true that trusting government and well it's not on uh, you know on a peak but uh, I think that the Citizens have understood the important roles that all this social protection and all of this uh, investment plays in our society and in, and in our personal lives. So yeah, I do I, I am hopeful for, for the future.
0: Thank you. We have a question here from uh, Troyan. Um, which I'm tempted to ignore, but I'm not going to. Uh, what about Europe's unauthorized immigrant population? So, uh, I'm not gonna, anybody wants to take this can answer, but I'm going to s- kick it off by saying, first of all, immigrants are miles cheaper than your locals. Uh, immigrants who come into the European Union, are, uh, they are one-eighth the cost for a health service uh, despite public perception uh, they tend to be younger they tend to be economically uh, more able they're a massive contribution to europe's economy uh, try and so uh, that's that's the first thing um that's uh, they're unauthorized well there are lots of reasons why there are refugees um, or economic migrants in Europe as well and uh, maybe we should make uh, better use of them uh, perhaps anybody else want to comment on that do we have uh, you know, or is there a way to integrate those undocumented within Europe into the system and and uh, uh, do as President Biden is trying to do as well, provide some form of uh, dreamers approach uh, to the European ideal as well? Dragos?
2: Yeah, I mean, we've done. Quite a few things about you know cross-border uh, workers and seasonal workers, including you know migrant workers, uh, even during the pandemics, when we've seen cases uh, <laughs> that were, were actually showing that, that you know uh, these type of workers are actually critical. Uh, so despite the you know nationalism that is actually trying to say that that these people are actually taking the jobs of the locals. I mean during the pandemic we've seen that they are intrinsically you know. Um, inter, you know, so, so important basically for for the economic uh, development of, of of Europe. So I would dare to say that there are lessons that we've learned from the from the crisis as well. Mobility in Europe should actually be a cherished value, and we should protect obviously the rights um, and to be sure that that that, that uh, we are not you know discriminating. But on the other hand, I think that the lessons are there, and we are going to 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 be. Uh, um, needed to be open actually to to migrants uh, as well uh, because they are contributing basically to uh, to our success and prosperity in europe so i'm actually quite favorable to that and i think that we've learned some lessons and we've already applied in uh, through both the parliament and and the commission initiatives recently
0: about this uh, study that we were talking about previously you said the world has been shaken by covid 19 but insurers governments employers are more aware of it and will uh, be better prepared for the next uh, crisis. I think Josephs one made the the remark earlier that you know we acted faster this time and that was an encouraging sign. You know the speed of action. Uh, we did things that had you discussed in two three years ago. You would have said, "No way is this going to happen in Europe and uh, Germany will put the brakes on everything." Are you optimistic that this learning curve? Um, uh, the, the shock of the pandemic has really put us in good position to deal with future uh, pandemics, future shocks to the system. Alison first, then Just.
5: Has it put us in? great? So if you want to be a glass half full optimist, then yes, let's, of let's course, do you would say, <laughs> yes, let's be the optimist. Um, yeah, I, I agree. We we would never have expected the recovery fund to have been put together. I mean, there's always been the talk within the European Union around North, South and kind of the ability to really continue the integration model. And I think being able to have mutualisation of debt is a, is a fantastic step. So I, th- I think the so if you're looking optimistically and then you look at the commitments ahead of COP26 and the focus and prioritisation in the recovery of decarbonisation and, importantly, around skills and the future of work and the future of what are the skills that are going to be necessary, taking into account the digitization trends we've been talking about. So I think there's plenty to be optimistic about. Um, unfortunately, we, we can see through history, though, plenty of times where um, optimism may have been... Um, Overly, uh, uh, overly rose-tinted. So we also have to have healthy realism and make sure that we're bringing everyone. I think Brian, to your answer on on the immigrant point, we, we do need to bring everyone with us. We need to we need to make sure everyone really understands the facts. So it's less about beliefs and perception. It's more about facts.
0: Thank you, Jos. Uh, how, how do you feel about this? Are we from where you're sitting? Are you confident that the speed of action, the lessons learned, not just from uh, 2010 but also from this crisis, that we're in uh, you know, institutionally better shape and capability to respond to the future shocks?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a very good question. I'm, I'm a bit in two minds about this. Um, I mean, first point, the, co- the Commission last week sent in a paper about lessons learned from the, uh, from the pandemic uh, with 10, 10 lessons which is now going to the European Council uh, uh, at the end of this week. Uh, and I think it's a pretty honest, quite sober assessment of where things uh, went uh, wrong at the start. And I think it's fair to say that everybody was unprepared for this. So it's in that regard, um, it's, it's, it's not bad to have a crisis from time to time, and it allows everybody to focus on the essential things. <clears throat> um, and that's what the pandemic uh, does and is doing. Secondly, there are more things. It's also, I think, this idea that we've been abandoned by the Americans under Trump, which I think is a real shock that uh, I think does have long-term uh, long, long uh, term consequences on the way we think and how we see our role in the world. The world is becoming more and more dangerous. We have also Mr. Putin on our doorstep. We have uh, cyber attacks, as Alison said. Um, and I also think that in all of this... Um, if I may say so, on a purely personal note, I think the fact that the United Kingdom is no longer a member state in a way makes it sometimes a bit easier to 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 make uh, make these steps. I mean, I I think the the departure is a tragedy. Don't get me wrong, but on on issues like uh, solidarity, uh, the res- recovery and resilience, if I may say so, resilience facility, I don't think this would have happened if they still had been here. We know very well uh, where they uh, where they came from in the past. Um, so I think. It has really, really changed a lot. Uh, and it's, it's this combination of all these factors of which the pandemic is only one, and I always call it a, more like a pressure cooker, uh, which has put everything under enormous pressure and forced us to decide very, uh, very quickly. Uh, and I think, and I, of course I, ho- I very much hope, and the Commission will do everything, so that these lessons are not forgotten, and that we will certainly have to be much better prepared next time, because there will be another crisis, we know it's happening.
0: And yet, we shouldn't forget that Europe was born out of crisis and has evolved continually, uh, surfed each uh, wave, not always effect, uh, to the best of its ability, but uh, we move forward continually. Uh, glass half full, Alison, let's uh, keep that. Uh, no, we, we're pretty much out of time, so I, um, I, there's a lot I would still like to talk about here today, but uh, we've got to respect the time. So I will just ask each of you for your, your final remarks and, and wrap up in this. Uh, Josh, do you want to kick off?
1: Well, thank you, thank you very much for an interesting discussion. It went very fast and you, you forced us to jump from one topic to another. Sometimes it made me feel a bit uncomfortable, but thanks a lot, it's, it's good to do these things. No, I think we've learned a lot. I think we, um, and it's always about the balance. It's always about the balance and it's about where the added value of the European Union comes from. And this is also very important. It's not, it would be wrong if people were to leave this seminar by thinking the commission will solve all the problems. This is not going to happen. And the commission can do many things. We can make proposals. But without the member states and without the social partners, I should say, not much will happen on the ground. And then, of course, there's the, there are many, many things that are better solved, I think, at the level of the, of the member states. But there are also, an en- there's almost an enormous work ahead of us. And I think it's only starting. And if we are serious about implementing the European Pillar of Social Rights, this is a, it's a program for the next uh, 10 years, easily. And if that commitment of Porto holds... I think it will, it will keep us all busy uh, for a very long time. In a Europe that will, whether we like it or not, integrate more and more and more. And we'll, we are, in a way, forced by outside developments okay. to do
2: things much more together.
0: Thank you. Joegos.
2: I mean this was a very nice discussion i I, I believe that uh, we were already before the pandemics in a very volatile world with you know uh, big tendencies going on with the digital transformation, the green transition and so on and the pandemics has just you know more or less you know came <laughs> from above and and, and and more or less forced us to see the vulnerabilities that we have in our society and right now we cannot deny it. Um, and we have right now the two-fold process going on. We need to change the paradigm and and break the silo and make the most out of this accelerated uh, development, the digitalization and modernization of of our society. And, And the second is, you know, we need to, you know, change from being reactive and waiting for things to happen to prevention and anticipating things, you know, through investment and especially for the next generation. That's you know, more future-oriented, and this is about the creative destruction that Schumpeter Schumpeter actually has mentioned a while ago. And uh, indeed, I mean, we cannot afford anymore to turn a blind eye or leave anyone behind, because this is the way to advance our social agenda for the sake of our citizens.
0: Maria, thank you. Thank you, Dragas. Maria, quick comment.
3: I would be quick. Yes, uh, as you said, Europe was born after a crisis. Now it's another big crisis, COVID, that's completely changed uh, the, the political agenda and uh, the agenda of the, of the societies at large. So we'll see what would happen uh, next, after this big crisis. So let's be uh, careful, let's prioritise some important things that must be done, to, that would uh, help us in this uh, sustainable transition. Thanks.
0: Thank, thank you so much, Maria. Mihai? Thank you. So
4: thank you for inviting, for inviting me and thank you all the other speakers for a, a nice debate. Uh, all I want to leave people with is, uh, you know, let's not uh, leave a crisis go to waste. Uh, we have a lot of funds available right now and they should go to reforms and those reforms should be centered around uh, competitiveness and about uh, social protection to reinforce that competitiveness.
0: Thank you. Alison, last word.
5: So I would just add to what everyone else has said to say, don't forget the important role that business has in working together with governments and other stakeholders. I think we all need to play our part and we are very happy to do so.
0: Thank you. Everybody is finishing with their glass half full. And just to remind you, make sure the elephant in the room is insured. And to thank the team here as well, to Zoran, Malta, uh, Tamara and Anna, and also to Zurich uh, for their support today. And thanks to our excellent panel today. I really enjoyed the discussion. Just Dragos, Maria, Mihai and Alison also. Uh, for me, I wish you a good afternoon.